So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you should root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, the field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the son of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place it will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father, we pray now that through the ministry of your spirit, uh, the realities that the Lord uh, Jesus is uh, describing for us here uh, would be right before our eyes that in a very real sense uh, we would feel the stakes of the close of the age right in front of us. And uh, Father, I pray that as your spirit makes plain uh, what is true, that you would build up your children and call the lost uh, to salvation in the Lord Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, we're back at the parable, same two parables we looked at last week, and Lord willing, we'll finish them this week. Uh, uh, I've, I've uh, put them together uh, for us these past two weeks because they deal with the same issue, and they're thematically linked, and it's very important to see their portraits alongside of one another. And what, what Jesus is doing in these two parables is, he is uh, he's confronting us with the issue of eternity. Uh, Matthew 13 is a chapter where Matthew has uh, gathered together um, a whole body of Jesus' teaching and parables about the kingdom of heaven. And we've seen how in those parables, uh, Jesus teaches us a bunch of different 
aspects of the kingdom. He tells us a lot of different things about the kingdom. Kingdom's value, why it is that not everybody uh, runs into the kingdom, Um, how the kingdom grows, a lot of things that we've been considering over the past several weeks. But these two parables, uh, what Jesus does in them is he fast forwards us to what to the end of history and what he calls the three times in our passage this morning the close of the age he takes us all the way to the end of history and he wants to make sure that we see what the ultimate stakes of the coming of his kingdom are and those stakes are described by Jesus in only two alternatives every life in other words is going to end up and be defined by, for all eternity, one of two destinies. There are not many paths. There are only two paths. And this you see over and over and over again in the teaching of Jesus. There are only two paths. And it's very common to meet people who don't read the Bible who assume that believing in Jesus means that you can believe in Jesus among a whole bunch of other paths. And let's just be very clear about this. That's not true. If you think that, it's okay if you think that, okay? But you just need to store that thought in the same place where you keep your pet unicorn. Now, I say it, you know, with some jocularity, but it's deadly serious. There is no such Jesus who would be tolerant of multiple paths. There's only the Jesus in these parables, and he's describing two paths. There's there's two possible destinations, two possible destinies for every life. Either there's a Christless eternity, which Jesus describes in very uh, chilling terms. He says that's... He describes it twice in terms of a fiery furnace, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He says both those things twice. That's the Christless eternity. That's what we thought about together last week with fear and trembling. Okay, And then there's the second possible destiny for every human life. It is the eternal destiny that Christ has purchased for his people, for each of his people in the kingdom of heaven. And he summarizes that Christ-purchased future, if you will, in verse 43, which is going to be our focus this morning. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. It's a beautiful summary of what the gospel inheritance is for those who trust in Christ and before, but before I get to my headings for you this morning, I want to make sure that I reinforce a point that I regard as the most important point from last week, and it is still the most important point this week. And if there's one thing, if you ask me, okay, Mike, I, you know, 45 minutes, just give me one thing to take away, it would be the same answer last week as this week. And it is that the cross is the measure of hell's loss and heaven's gain. So when we think about these two destinies, we think about a Christless eternity, and we think about a Christ-purchased eternity. 
in the kingdom of heaven. Both of them are defined by the cross. The fact, my friends, the fact that defines hell, that makes hell hellish, is the loss, the eternal loss of fellowship with the God who designed the cross. The eternal loss of fellowship with the God who planned the redemption of sinners. The eternal loss of fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Spirit who purposed before all eternity by their agreement to redeem a people unto themselves. The eternal loss of fellowship with that God, a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who not only by their eternal agreement purposed this redemption, but then in the fullness of time in history accomplished that redemption. The eternal loss of fellowship with the God who designed the cross, the Father who sent, who sent the Son, the Son who came in obedience to His Father to be the sin-bearer, the Spirit who then applies all that work of the Son to sinners, the Spirit who empowers the offer of the gospel. It would be one thing, right, for the, for, the, for the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to plan a redemption like that, right? It's another thing then for them to accomplish it in history. And then the third level of wonder is that they would then bring the news of that great accomplishment throughout history and apply that news and apply all of the benefits of that redemption to any sinner, any sinner. Not on the basis of works, but simply as the overflow of grace that is to be received in repentance and faith. This is what will define hell, is the never-ending knowledge that you have spurned that gospel offer and have lost eternally fellowship with that God. There will be no pain in hell as great as that. And Jesus makes sure we understand that. But this morning, see, let me explain this. You know, I drive around, I see the same completely unhelpful church billboards that you do. And the reason I linger there is because I want you to have a biblical definition of hell. Hell is not a witticism. It is not a punchline. It is not an abstraction. It is a real place. And everything about hell is defined with reference to Jesus Christ. And so I don't want you to adopt the silliness that is so commonplace among churches where hell and fire insurance and turn or burn and those kind of things which are so deeply offensive, not just to people but to God. Don't, don't go there. I want you to have a Christ-centered, cross-centered definition of hell. And, and, and even more, do I want you to have a cross-defined vision of heaven's gain? Right? Because everything I said about the loss that defines hell, the upside of that, the flip side of that, is all those things are the measure of the gain that we have in the kingdom of heaven. Fellowship with that God that I described 
eternal fellowship with him, not just as a, a stranger or a distant monarch, but as your father. And to have Jesus Christ as your brother and to have the Holy Spirit indwelling you as God's own temple. Oh, that is amazing. And Jesus gives us this glimpse this morning in verse 43 of what awaits those who are in Christ. And it is a vision of such beauty and such greatness. I think it's going to sweep you off your feet this morning just to think about it, to slow down long enough to think about what Jesus is describing here. And there's three things I want to zero in on, all in verse 43 or from verse 43. Three things that Jesus assures us of that will be every single Christian's inheritance in the kingdom of heaven. And so let me immediately, right from the beginning, say to our non-Christian friends who are here, this all can be yours as well today. But you can't be a window shopper. You have to come in. So the three things... Three promises about your future, my Christian brother and sister. One, in the kingdom of heaven. One, you're going to be openly approved. Second, you're going to be fully beautiful. Third, you're going to be finally home. Openly approved, fully beautiful, and finally home. Let's think first about what Jesus shows us from verse 43 about being openly approved on that great day. What Jesus is assuring us of here, my brothers and sisters, is that the day is coming and will soon be here when you, as one of Jesus' people, will be openly approved. You see what he says? Look at your future. Look at the way that Jesus describes your future, the future you, in verse 43. Then the righteous... Who is he talking about, brother and sister? He's talking about you. He's talking about me. He's talking about every single one of his disciples. The end of history. Can you imagine getting to the end of history? There are two possible destinies. One for the righteous and one for those who have spurned the Son of God. And you, my Christian brother or sister, are going to belong here where God says only the righteous go. That is amazing. Because you know yourself. You know you're not righteous. How could that be? See, this is what's amazing about the Christian life. When we think about verse 43, what we're being called to do is to reflect again on the wonders of the gospel. Jesus is telling us things that he is going to fulfill in his ministry that should blow our minds. And the first wonder of the gospel I want want to review with you is that this, you're already approved. If you're in Christ this morning, you're already under God's approval. Notice I didn't say that when you get to the kingdom of heaven, you'll be fully approved or you'll be finally approved. I said very deliberately, you'll be openly approved. Why did I do that? See, words matter because you already are, if you're in Christ, fully and finally approved. That's already true about you. 
This is the wonder of what justification by faith is, my friends. Um, oh, good, I do have a hymnal up here. You know, I, I make notes to myself to get a hymnal, and then I forget. Okay? And, and this is the first wonder of the gospel that I, I just want you, before we think about how you'll be openly approved at the end of history, to really appreciate that, we need to remember what's already true about you in Christ. And what's already true about you in Christ is that you are already under God's approval because of the wonder of the doctrine of justification by faith. In the present, God's approval is the Christian's possession. Do you hear that? His unrestrained, unreserved, complete approval is the Christian's, not just future possession, but present possession. No exceptions, no footnotes, no asterisks, no buts. There's a period on that sentence. This is what justification by faith is all about. Look with me at page, pull out a hymnal and look with me. I want you to see this because this is so beautiful. Go to page 871 in the back of the hymnal. Question 33 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Some of you are going to run out of here and ask to have this tattooed on your, on your back, and it's good. I will approve. It would be wise. Well, actually, you need to have it somewhere where you can see it. So maybe, well, anyway. Okay. Bottom of the page, 871, question 33. What is justification? Now, notice the parts of this answer. Justification is an act of God's free grace. It's an event. It happens at conversion. And it's irreversible and irrevocable. It happens once, and it happens at conversion. It's not a work of God's free grace. It's an act of God's free grace. It's a point in time. Boom! And what happens at that point in time? Wherein he, and I'll just update the language, wherein he pardons all our sins, past, present, and future, and accepts us as righteous in his sight. See, that's present now. Only. How could he do that? I'm a sinner. I'm not righteous. Ah, this is the wonder of substitution in the gospel. What Jesus is is reckoned to the account of the believer only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. What that's saying, friends, is that when you were converted in Christ, all of God's approval of Christ became your approval. Not only were you forgiven, which is awesome, past, present, future. I mean, just, just think about that. We, if, if that was all we had to think about, we would be worshiping all day long. But on top of that full pardon, you have full acceptance based on the righteousness of Christ. Right now is your present possession. That's amazing. God unreservedly, at your conversion, unreservedly, very happily, bestows upon you all the righteousness of Jesus Christ and reckons it to you so that from uh, ground zero in the Christian life all the way through glory, you will always be righteous in his sight, no exceptions. Turn with me to Romans 1. You think, that's crazy. If you think it's crazy, you're close to getting it. 
If that, if that doesn't phase you, if it doesn't shock you, you, you need to ask God to give you some spiritual caffeine. So Romans 1, 16 through 17, this is what staggers Paul. This is the thesis statement for the book of Romans. 1, 16 through 17. Paul said, well, actually, you can start at 15. You know, it, it's very interesting. Uh, Paul is writing to Christians who are in Rome, and so he says in verse 15, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. In other words, now that's kind of a shocking statement for a lot of people. What Paul's saying is, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you Christians. And I just wish that, you know, the editors of the ESV hadn't shoved that heading in between verse 15 and 16. In my Bible, there's a subheading. Get it out of there. Because the very next thought, why is he eager to preach the gospel to Christians who are in Rome? Why? Because he's not ashamed of the gospel. Verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Paul, why aren't you ashamed of the gospel? I mean, that's his way of saying, I'm exhilarated by the gospel. I'm rejoicing in the gospel. I'm fascinated by the gospel. I can't shut up about the gospel. Why not, Paul? For... It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Okay, now I get it. This is an amazing gospel. You, you're eager to preach it to the Christians who are in Rome because it's amazing. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. All you have to do is receive it by faith. And it, so then, because it's God's power for salvation... It has nothing to do with your ethnicity. It has nothing to do with your religious background. It has nothing to do with your biblical knowledge. It has nothing to do with your track record of sin. No, because it's the power of God for salvation. Now, how could it be the power of God for salvation, Paul? What is it that is so powerful? What is it about God that is put to work to save sinners? What is it, Paul? That's why verse 17 exists, to answer that question. Notice the word for. He's now going to tell us how the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Now, now get ready for this. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. What? Here's the problem. We've heard those words so many times. They don't shock us. And because they don't shock us, they don't free us. Because what Paul is saying is exactly the opposite of what we expect. He doesn't say that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For in it, the grace of God is revealed. Or the love of God is revealed. No, he says exactly the last thing we expect. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Wait a second. The ver Wait, Paul, you're saying that the very thing that identifies me as a sinner that against which when I measure myself, I see that I need redemption. You're saying that that very aspect of God is, the, is at the heart of the power that saves me? 
that the very part of God, his moral perfection, his righteousness, that that very thing that reveals my sin rescues me from it? That's exactly what Paul is saying. How could that be? It's from faith for faith. Wait a second. Are you saying that all I have to do from beginning to end for that to be true about me, for the righteousness of God to go to work to save me from my sin is simply to believe? Yes. Well, this is a great gospel, my friends, but we're not done. Because notice what Paul does. He then says, and by the way, this has always been the case. He's quoting now the Old Testament. He's quoting Habakkuk 2.4. He says, as it is written, God's already explained this to us. The righteous shall live by faith. Well, who's that righteous person? Who's that righteous one? Well, in context, the only righteousness that's on the table right now is God's righteousness. And yet... God doesn't live by faith. So who's he talking about? He's talking about the one who believes. So do you see what that means? What that means is that Paul is saying the gospel is the power of God for salvation. The power of God for salvation of a sinner is the righteousness of God going to work for the sinner. And that righteousness goes to work for the sinner in such a way that it is answered, that the sinner's sin is answered at the cross by the substitution of Jesus, who bears the full weight of God's justice against our sin. And then on top of that, when you believe in Christ, then all the righteousness of God then goes from Jesus to the one who believes, so that in God's perfect evaluation, he can call you the righteous one and not violate his own ninth commandment. And that's talking about the present because that's living by faith right now. That is God talking about you, my Christian brother or sister, the righteous. I think that's awesome. But here's the problem. Our faith is weak. Our faith is weak and our performance stinks. And our problem is that we don't see ourselves through Christ, through the Father's eyes. We see ourselves through our own eyes or our critics' eyes or our enemies' eyes. We look at ourselves in the mirror. We look at ourselves in the in the picture that our critics or the people who have heard us put up about us, and we think that that's who we are. But that's not who you are, Christian. God is saying that you are already under his approval. Fully and finally. So how could it get any better? You say, wait a second, Mike. Okay, so we're done, right? Oh, you wish we were done. (laughs) Let me tell you how it can get better. Right now, although the approval that we enjoy from God is full and final, 
The verdict, uh, you know what the cross is? The cross is the final judgment of history being brought into the present. So we stand, if we're looking to the cross and trusting in Christ's uh, substitution for us, his satisfaction for us, guess what? Then, then the final verdict of history uh, being declared righteous is already over us. That God put the final judgment in the cross at Calvary. He put it all the way from the end of history into the middle of history. So you're looking at the end times right there. But it's not open, is it? And so at the end of history, here's what's going to happen. We're going to be openly approved. One day it's going to get even better. One day the fullness, the all-readiness of our approval from God is going to ripen into unmistakable openness. And on that day, right, this is going to be when Jesus returns. And hallelujah, right, on that day, the chasm between our faith and our sight is going to be closed forever and it's never going to open up again. Our approval will not be by faith. It will be by sight. Because here's why. Sight and sound, really. Because we're going to hear Jesus uh, in the midst of all the nations. When the Son of Man comes and sits on his throne, Matthew 25 says, and, and has the sheep on his right and the goats on his left, and all the nations are assembled before him, every single person is going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And those who are his people are going to hear him say, well, in the presence of all the nations, openly, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And it's going to echo through the world. And people will know the truth about you. It's what Paul talks about in 2 Timothy 4, right? 7 and 8. He says, I fought the good fight. It's the last letter he writes. I fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, now think about this, henceforth there is laid up for me, or in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing, all Christians, there's one crown of righteousness, not multiple crown of, crowns of righteousness. There is one crown of righteousness. It is the righteousness of Jesus Christ openly, fully displayed on you at the conclusion of your life. Oh, it's awesome. This is the longest point, by the way. You know what this means? Brothers and sisters in Christ, you know what this means? This means that you are to live now in the confidence that one day the full story of your life is going to be made known. It will be known, it will be shown, it will be on public display for all to see. And listen to Jesus' summary of what your full story is. Here's Jesus' synopsis of your life, my Christian brother or sister. The righteous. Today, you think the synopsis of your life, you might think the synopsis of your life is that you're a failure, or you've made mistakes from which you can never recover, or you're a disappointment, or you're unclean, or you're ugly, or you're dirty, or whatever it is. But friends, that is not the story. That is not true. That is not the way God evaluates your life. How can it be? Jesus, 
took all your mistakes. Jesus bore in his body all your failures, all your ugliness, all your sin. He absorbed it in his body. You died to those things and they were executed. They cannot define you anymore because when Jesus rose from the dead, friends, he broke their power. On that day, the righteous judge is going to speak his personal and eternal approval over your life. And every mistake and every failure and every criticism, every aspect and facet of the shame you carry is going to have absolutely no power to define you to be your story. They're nothing but footnotes in the back of the book that no one is ever going to read. They're gone. So that's the first point. When you get there, my Christian brother and sister, you're going to be openly approved. But not only that, you're going to be fully beautiful. Fully beautiful. This is... What, what Jesus is saying when he describes that then the righteous will shine like the sun. Do you see that? Will shine like the sun. Fully beautiful. Look again. This is Jesus describing your future to you. He's describing the future you, my Christian brother or sister. You're going to shine like the sun in that day. You're going to be fully beautiful. And so, men, before you make a mad dash to the parking lot, because I just said you're going to be beautiful... Hang in, because what, what I mean by that is that Jesus is describing what it's going to mean to be glorified, what it's going to mean to be fully conformed to his image, because the day is coming when there will be no blemish, there will be no scar, there will be no wounds on us, there will be no vestiges of sin, no remnants of the fall whatsoever. We will be fully glorified, and to be fully glorified means to be fully conformed to the image of Christ. But here again, we've got to do the wonder of the gospel, because our beauty is not just a future promise for the Christian in the gospel, it is also a present possession. We are beautiful right now with the beauty of Christ. This happens right at conversion because at conversion, what happens is that God makes a union between the sinner and Jesus Christ so that everything that belongs to Jesus now belongs to the sinner. That's awesome. And there's no prenuptial agreement. So he's not holding anything back. Not like Bill and Melinda Gates. Oh my goodness, why you would ever enter into that union, I don't have any idea. I'll marry you, but I'll keep back all my stuff. I just want you to know, Jesus doesn't do that. You get all his stuff. He's happy to share everything that he is with you, including his beauty. And so that's why when Paul describes the Christian, there are a lot of ways, you think about it, uh, several texts I've given you, 1 Corinthians 1.30, he says that by his doing, by the Father's doing, you are in Christ Jesus. You know, he's saying this to the Corinthians, who were a total mess. They weren't very pretty. And he's reminding them, at the very beginning of the letter, he says, for by his doing, by the Father's doing, you are in Christ Jesus. You're, that's who you are right now. 
who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification. So, so Jesus, now we are, we are beautiful in the sight of God because we are in Christ. And then again, Galatians 3.27, for all of you who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. We're clothed with Christ. When the Father looks at you, you look like Christ. You're beautiful in his eyes. Colossians 3.3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That, you know, it's like Christ has these beautiful robes and we, he covers us with them. And that's true now in God's evaluation. It doesn't matter how you think about yourself. It doesn't matter what other people think about you. What matters is seeing yourself through the Father's eyes as he has promised uh, by this inspired scriptures. Friends, you're, if you're in Christ this morning, you, he is your sanctification. So all the holiness and the beauty of holiness that is possessed by Jesus Christ is yours in the sight of God. You see, that is why the Christian, if you take these first two points about, about being approved, already approved, and being already beautiful, that is why Christian worship is meant to be defined by joy. It's why the Christian pursues fellowship with God and grows because we don't skulk into the presence of God with our heads hanging low because we haven't lived up to snuff because it was never about our snuffiness to begin with. That's not a word, I know. But you know what I mean. It's about Jesus's. Listen, if I was wearing royal robes right now, you wouldn't care whether my undershirt had a hole in it. Well, you're wearing Christ. What if you went home today and remembered that? Have you guys seen those? Uh, I don't often watch uh, Dove soap commercials, so, but I did watch this one. I don't even use Dove. But this, this is one of the best commercials I've ever seen. The Real Beauty commercial, have you seen this? Oh, this is awesome. This is so awesome. But of course, they don't get the gospel. And I'm watching this, and my, I'm just shedding tears because I'm like, that's the gospel. It's a great setup. They have, they have a forensic artist from the San Jose Police Department, like a 22-year veteran. And he's in this loft, right? And he's sitting at an artist table. How many of you have seen this? Okay, so, so it's still worth explaining, okay? And he's sitting there at this artist table, and there's a curtain that's separating him from a seat on this side. So this will be the curtain, right? And the artist will be over here. And in this seat, he, uh, a succession of three women come in, and he interviews them. They never see him. He never sees them. But he asks them a series of questions. And he says, tell me about yourself. What do you look like? And he's one of those, you know, composite sketch kind of police artists. So he does this all the time, right? Tell me about yourself. And they have little excerpts that show, you know, how they're talking about themselves. So then they never see what he drew, and they never see him. They go out, and then a second woman comes in who has, who has just recently been introduced to the woman who was right there whose portrait is being drawn. 
and has spent some time with this woman and gotten to observe her. And then the artist says, okay, now describe Sally to me. And then he draws a picture. So for each of the three women, there are two pictures. One that is the product of their self-description and the other one that is the product of their new friend's description. And the, cl and the commercial climaxes with this artist showing the women the two portraits. And in every single case, the portrait that is the result of the woman's self-description is not as beautiful. In fact, it's ugly in comparison to how the other person saw them. And I, when I saw that, I said, that is exactly the issue, the gospel issue in a Christian's life because I see myself according to my own self-description. And I see great ugliness in me. And I must learn in the gospel, if I'm honest, right? If I'm honest, I must learn increasingly to see myself as God sees me. What would happen, my friends, if the father sat down on the other side of that curtain from the artist and described you to the artist? I'll tell you what the picture would be. It would be Jesus. It would be the beauty of Jesus Christ because you are in him. There is nothing that belongs to Jesus Christ that he has held back from any one of his people. Now, that's already true about you. What's going to happen ultimately? Well, what's going to happen ultimately, right, is you're going to be fully and finally beautiful. There will be no gap between faith and sight. The chasm will be closed on the day that Jesus comes back. And what it's going to mean to shine like the sun, the S-U-N, is that in that day, and it's going to be here soon, sooner than we think, what it means, what it will mean to shine like the S-U-N, friends, is that we will shine like the S-O-N. We will bear his image. Right now we're being transformed into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to the next. It's incremental. It's, it's difficult process. It's degree by degree. That's 2 Corinthians 3.18. But the day is coming when God's promise, God's purpose in Romans 8.29 that Jesus would be the firstborn among many brothers when all of whom are conformed to his image. The day is coming, Jesus is telling us in Matthew 13.43, when the Father's purpose is going to be fulfilled and we will bear the image of Jesus's glorious body the true human being the true image of God the 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 ultimate perfection of beauty is to be conformed to Jesus's image and Jesus is saying we're going to shine like that sun shine like him I love Philippians 3.21. Paul says, we, you know, our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly await a Savior. We're looking. Our hope is not in our self-improvement. Oh, this is, this is a place where Christianity just diverges from every other, every other approach to life. Christianity is not a self-improvement religion. Our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly await a Savior who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. Think about that. By the power that he has to subject all things to himself. 
when he comes back, he's going to make us fully beautiful. You know, in heaven, there's only going to be one person. In the kingdom of heaven, there's only going to be one person who has any wounds or scars. It's Jesus, right? Everyone else is going to be perfect. There will be no marks of the fall, no vestiges, but Jesus is always going to have those wounds so that we know that everything we enjoy in heaven, every, every second, every nanosecond in the kingdom of heaven, we're going to know, we're going to see those wounds, and we're going to remember what a price. What a price was paid for our beauty. The marring of the Lamb of God that we might be made beautiful. Do you know anybody like that? There's no one like that but Jesus. How could you possibly withhold your life from one like that? Friends, forever and ever, we are going to enjoy the fruits of Christ's labor. We're going to be so beautiful on that day. We're going to enjoy the fruits of Christ. We'll not not only just know them by faith, right? But we'll see them. We'll be in them. And we'll enjoy them. And we'll know that he is the one who purchased that beauty for us. It's his beauty and he's put it upon us. And not just on the outside, but on the inside. Every part of us, intellect, will, emotions, imagination, capacities, capabilities, all our abilities, all those things will be made fully beautiful in conformity to the image of Christ. We're going to shine like the sun from the outside and we're going to shine like the sun on the inside. Everything about us is going to be fully and finally beautiful as God wants it to be, as Christ has died and risen again to provide for us. We're going to stand on that day in the splendor of the spotless beauty and blemish-free beauty that Christ gave himself on the cross to purchase for us. And on that day, our last point, We'll be finally home. Finally home. If you turn with me to Psalm 27. First baptism I did after uh, I was ordained, this was my text. And the reason it was my text is on page uh, 460 in your pew Bible. And I just want you to look at one verse, which is the reason I picked it when I, uh, when I did my first baptism. And David says, For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Now, what's, what's hard to see in the English is the word that David uses when he says, uh, the Lord will take me in. The word that he uses is the word for gleaning. And it made me wonder whether David was thinking about his great-grandmother Ruth 
because, because I want you to think about the image. It, my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord has gleaned me. Now think about it. What did you glean? Well, you gleaned the things that were left over that everybody had passed by. It was the remnants. It was the, it was the what no one else wanted. And you see the picture that David has in that psalm. Is the, God, is the Lord acting, acting uh, like, a, like an adoptive parent who picks up the discarded orphan that everyone has passed by and takes that child home with him. Now, friends, I know for many of you, that is an astonishing image. And, and it's a beautiful, the reason I start there on this last point is because that is a beautiful anticipation of the fatherhood of God that he reveals in the gospel to us. And when Jesus says in verse 43, back in Matthew 13, so let's go back there. When Jesus says, then the righteous will shine like the sun. Notice, where are they going to shine like the sun? In the kingdom, not of the Father, but of their Father. We're going to shine, the sons of God are going to shine. And we'll belong to him. Jesus' Father will be our Father will be full-fledged members in the royal family of the universe. And we'll belong there. That'll be our home. In fact, it's the only home we were ever made for. It's the only place we were ever designed to feel at home. And one day we're going to get there. Because Jesus is going to come back and bring to us the place that he has gone to prepare for us. Because the Father's mansion moves, you know. He doesn't say that in John 14, but it's true. The Father's mansion has wheels. It comes down from heaven, Revelation shows us, and it becomes the earth. It's a mobile home, you could say. And you can quote me on that. It's beautiful. But you know, again, here we go, wonder number three of the gospel we're already adopted, right? We're already the children of God, right? This is, what, this, is the, this is the Christian's present possession again, that God is already our Father, and we are already His children. That's what John says at the beginning of, of John's Gospel, right? For every, to everyone who received Him, who believed in His name, He, Jesus, gave the right to become the children of God. And then later on in 1 John 3, He says, to see what kind of love the Father has given to us, already given, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. We're already the children of God. Or Galatians 4, when Paul says that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law so that we could receive the adoption as sons. And because we are sons, he poured out his Spirit into our hearts, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. That's already true for the Christian. God's already our Father. But if we're honest about it, right, we know that in this age, right, before the end of the age, the spirit of adoption intermingles with groaning because we are sons and daughters who know we're not yet finally home, right? We know that. 
And that's why there's a tension. There isn't groaning in the non-Christian's life in the same way that there's groaning in the Christian's life because we've received the first fruits of our inheritance. The Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance. And, and to have the Spirit in your life crying out, Abba, Father, you are my Father, I am your child, that makes you want to get home. We're homesick. And if we're not homesick, we're probably not Christians. Our groaning is the measure of our longing for the day when we will shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. This is what Jesus is promising to us. And the day is coming, and it will be here soon, when all our homesickness is going to be over because we're going to be finally home. And we'll be finally home because Jesus will have personally brought our home to us in the new heavens and the new earth. All our lives, all our lives, if we're honest, we have wanted to be on the inside, like C.S. Lewis says. All our lives, in ten thousands of situations, we have wanted to be numbered among the, the select company, the few who get chosen, the few who get in, who get to belong. And what Jesus is saying to us here in verse 43, friends, is that all of those opportunities, whether they, you know, they start on, <laughs> when you're playing kickball and picking teams, and they go all the way to the most august professional association, we want to get in. And Jesus is saying those are nothing nothing. You've got to follow that desire up to the ultimate fulfillment. The reason you have that desire is because you were meant to be home with God. Finally home. And one day, we're going to be in that place that Jesus lived and died and rose again, went through the tomb and then went all the way to heaven right in his exaltation in order to prepare for us. We're going to get into that place. Friends, these are the three quests that define the human heart, I believe. The quest for approval, the quest for beauty, the quest for a home. Every human heart is driven. You can't deny it. Every human heart is defined by those three quests. You might use different words, but in the end, that's what makes you a human being because God made your heart. And more specifically, God made you to find your approval in Him, to live in God's approval. He meant for you to pursue uh, what it means to be beautiful in God's eyes. And He meant for you to pursue a home with Him. And there, is, there are many ways that those quests can reach failure. And only one that they can find fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And so what I'm praying this morning is that you, my friend, this very morning, whether as a Christian or a non-Christian, will, for the first time or the millionth time, press into that kingdom and toward that inheritance by faith. Let's pray. How... How precious is your steadfast love, O oh God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them to drink from the river of your delights. For with you, 
is the fountain of life. And in your light, we see light. And we pray in Jesus' name.